Hi everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of Rebel Chums. We're back doing Harry Potter again after we took a little detour to a galaxy far away. A quick trip to Exegol. Um, so it's Half-Blood Prince, um, the one where... I, I think shit gets real in this one. This is when it starts. If this was a Friends real. episode, it'd be called The One Where Shit Gets Real. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could go for that. Yeah. Um, so this is like, what, 10 years old now? 11 years old? Uh, yeah, 10 and a half. So oh. what were we... I mean, I'm, I'm saying, what were we all doing? The we are... So there's me, Rob... That, that was... That yeah. was quite forced. <laughs> there's also me, Jake. Me, Andy. Me, Noah. And me, Vicky. Welcome okay. back, Vicky. Yeah, we Welcome brought Vicky, Vicky back at Wally, right? That was the last one you were here wow. for. Wow. Yeah. That was ages ago. That was so long ago. Um... <laughs> Welcome, Vicky. Um, why this film of all the Harry Potter films? Because, I, I, as far as I'm aware, you didn't jump on the bandwagon late. You picked this film. Yeah. No, I. Um, it's it, it's kind of it's like like Rob says. It's kind of the the kind of in between film where it goes from oh this is like children beating the baddie to like wow this is like a thing where they're going to save the wizarding world now and it there's it this is the film where it it gets. Dark. It's the Infinity War of Harry Potter. It is, yeah. Like <laughs> at the end of Order of the Phoenix, like people die and blah blah blah. And then GBNF serious. <laughs> but it still ends on quite it Order of the Phoenix still ends on quite a hopeful note because yeah. the last line of the film is like Harry saying, We are one thing that Voldemort doesn't, something worth fighting for. And yeah. you go, Oh yeah, that's a nice message. The girl we're fighting yeah. for <laughs> at the start of this film, it's just like turmoil immediately and it just cracks on from there like there's no like there's a couple of bits in the middle where it's like oh this is light and airy and it like brings the mood up a little bit but this film is just like dense like emotionally dense the whole way through and like as a, a fan who read the books and then watched the films this is an important one this kind of sets everything off for like the final go I'm, so i'm glad you mentioned the book thing because we say this in every harry potter yeah. Um, podcast that we do um, but tell us a little bit about your relationship with the books and Harry Potter in general just because it is again it's, oh. it is very difficult to not link the two of them together oh yeah totally so, so, tell us about your experience in the wizarding world um, so the first book came out what 1998 I don't know I'm I think it's sure. a, bit, a little bit before that but... I think 96 uh, yeah. so well the way that it works is the battle for Hogwarts happens the same year that the first book came out so whatever year. Oh, 97 then. 97. So, I, I would have been four in 1997. I got this book when I was five. Well, like, oh. I got The Philosopher's Stone when I was five. My cousin read it, and who was a lot older than me, um, and basically said to my mum, oh, Victoria would like this, and gave it to me, and then that was it. It's the first time I've ever heard you I've refer to yourself got... as Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a family thing. <laughs> but, yeah, I've still got... Um, yes, 97. My, June 97. My first edition that my cousin gave me that's like one of my prized possessions. Well, the Philosopher's Stone, they're really, really rare them nowadays. It's not a, um, it's not where her name's changed. It's it's the first edition of J.K. Rowling Mm. uh, with the original illustration on the front, but otherwise, uh, yeah, that that goes everywhere with me and it's like a prize, prize possession. And I just kept up with it ever since. We always used to go on holiday in July and the book would come out around the time that we went on holiday and it would always yeah, be pre-ordered. I remember yeah, it always come out in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I remember then, back getting, um, I think it was Order of the Phoenix, or it might have been Half-Blood Prince, yeah. um, from the local Quicksafe. 
No, <laughs> we got it from Quicksave because they were selling it at a loss to try and get people yeah, into yeah. Quicksave. That and uh, my auntie works in the Quicksave, so she could reserve us a copy before the oldest appeared. Nice. Half a piece was the first one where me and my sister were able to get our own copy each because we both wanted to read it straight away, and Quicksave yeah. was selling it for two fifty, I think it was. When Crazy, that's ridiculous. Goblet of Fire came out. Uh, it came out, came out the day I went on holiday, and I was absolutely devastated because I wasn't going to be able to get this book till I got home. Um, but my mum would pre-ordered it at the airport and I'd finished it before we got off the plane. I had that with Deathly Hallows, exactly. Yeah. She with Deathly Hallows. And, um, yeah. but the, so the books always came out in July and the films always came out in November, mm-hmm. which my birthday's in November, exactly. so I, I always go. There's quite a few of them that came out like on our actual birthdays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this film though, this actually was released in the summer. Although no, it, was, it was scheduled for November. The alternative for the last one was where some of them went for, uh, came out in July and some of them came out in November, November. I think. This, this was scheduled for November 2008, but Warner Brothers decided they didn't have anything to release summer the next year. So they pushed it back yeah, to the summer it. for the next year. Yeah. Oh, right. It's just because this was released in the sort of... This is 2009, and you'll if you went back through all the Rebel Chums we did... This was around the time where Wally was out, Up was out, Ratatouille, like all of those, and I didn't go to see any of those in the cinema. Wasn't a cinema guy at this point. Like, really just was not a cinema didn't guy. Didn't even see this in the cinema? I did. Oh. Because I hadn't I saw seen... Saw you segue there, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, and, but I, 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 the, only reason, the reason I remember this so clearly is because I was away. And I was in a... And it's funny because I might as well have not gone to the cinema to see it. Um, I, when this came out, it was like July, August 2009, and I was 15. And I was um, in my first relationship for about six, seven months. And it was the second time I was ever going to meet her because we lived quite far away from each other. And my parents were going to drive me up to where she lived. And then the four of us were going to go and stay in um, like on a campsite or in a, in a caravan on the coast near where she lived. Because we wanted to be away from her parents but her parents didn't want her to go too far away so we compromised and we said right okay we'll go to a coastal caravan site 40 miles away and uh just one of the days she was a really big harry potter fan she liked the books similar i think she had a similar kind of thing with you guys where she read them and didn't let go of them and i hadn't seen order of the phoenix in the cinema i don't think or at least if i did i can't remember um, so we had nothing to do and so we decided to go and watch um, Half-Blood Prince and it was in a cinema in Greenock which is near Largs in Scotland it's about sort of 30-40 miles west of uh, Glasgow and we might as well have not gone because I was at that kind of like stupid stage um, in the relationship where like it kind of goes beyond not being able to keep your hands off each other and we didn't pay attention to the film we were in the cinema on our own in a tiny shitty like small screen with nobody else about and okay i don't think i want to know what happened it was just a, it, it, it was just a, a back row situation fondle. i mean we just, a, just like, a quick back row fondle well, like, <laughs> no not at all no 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 because we, we weren't like we were far too young and innocent to be doing anything like that we were just only paying attention to each other and then we we didn't really notice that the film had ended, and we just sort of like we realised that it <laughs> lights had gone up, and we, we we and the usher came in, and we decided to go. And they're like, "Hey, what are you two naked people doing?" Back <laughs> no, we definitely weren't naked. But um, but well, no, that that is why I remember going to see this one because I don't remember seeing it. I think that story is as good a time as any to go over to you, Nor, as Rob's current girlfriend. <laughs> um, what about you? Did you get off with an extra in the film? <laughs> Um, I've only seen this film once, um, 
as I have with all of the other Harry Potter films, apart from The Goblet of Fire. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, not a massive fan, which I've mentioned in previous episodes. Um, I don't remember a lot of it. I think I watched it within like the first two years of it coming out or something. Um, yeah. Did you only watch these films because you felt like an obligation? To no, my sister Harry loved them. Oh, so yeah. I'd just watch them with her. My sister loved the books. See, the first, the first book came out the year I was born. So I think I'd, I'd missed it. But yeah. I was old enough to read. Maybe a touch so, late. Yeah, I, was all, yeah. <laughs> I was only three when they came out, and Vicky wasn't much older. Yeah, well, you've got Gemma. Um, that's true, Gemma was the one that got the books. Yeah, yeah, first, and, and your older sister? Yeah, she got the books. Book. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you were a ripe age for the films. Whereas I was an only child and a big one. Yeah, so. I guess. I just never never got into him. No, and to be honest, it's not like. It is not. Just because you're our age, it is not expected of you to like a popular franchise. My feelings on the film and sort of experiences of it, obviously I watched it when it came out, because um, Harry Potter fan and Harry Potter nerd, especially when I was a kid. But since then, it's just like, this is probably the one I've seen the least. It mm. sort of gets forgotten about, both books and film-wise, because when you think of the books, it's, it's before the last one. And it's after Order of the Phoenix, which is the best book. It's Everyone knows it's just the best. Massive Potter. as well. Yeah. Like. Um, so it's just like I. It's with all the other Harry Potter books, I read them all like nine to thirteen times or something ridiculous like that when I was a kid. This one I never read that much because I just wasn't that bothered. And same with the film, I just don't like. I don't know whether I like it or dislike it because I, I can't even remember the last time I watched this film. Mm. It's just like you know. It's the it's the forgotten Harry Potter child for me. My feel, my feelings are similar to yours, but a little bit more severe. This was I mean I went to see this. I was seventeen. I went with my sister and my mom. All three of us went to see all the films. We were like we're all massive fans. Um, this is the only one of all of them where my initial reaction was I was really disappointed um, because I feel it's a lot of little things. Well, it's it, it's it's that, and also David Yates' direction of this film, I think, is awful, and the score's rubbish. But it's a lot of little things as well, where it's particularly towards the end in the Might climax. Have to contest you about the score later on. Oh, it's all rubbish, yeah. and that is like almost universally agreed now that it's rubbish. So, <laughs> well, not universally agreed, because <laughs> almost <laughs> almost universally. Um, but I was always really disappointed, because, especially towards the end, where there's some small changes made that really rip the heart out of the story. I think. Um, and you get the most annoying thing that David Yates does with these films is that he takes small changes without realising what that does to the characters and that it makes them appear out of character and there's a lot of that in this film and I just I just was a bit disappointed I mean I'm not a huge fan of the book either it's it's, it's one of my less favourite books but this is definitely one of my least favourite of the Harry Potter films um, and it's definitely the one I've seen the least as well having said that I don't hate it and I'm looking forward to reappraising it but as primarily a book fan, this film tends to rub me up the wrong way. But yeah, we will, uh, all five of us, will see you on the other side. This place has known magic. They're gonna kill me, Harry. 
Voldemort has chosen Draco Malfoy for a mission. Evil will pass through from their world into our own. These are mad times we live in, mad! And the darkest hour, beyond anything I imagined, is upon us all. In my life, I've seen things that are truly horrific. Now I know you'll see worse. You're the chosen one, Harry. You have to realize who you are. Without you, we leave the fate of our world to chance. You have no choice. You must not fail. From Warner Brothers Pictures. Has to do this. Fight back, you coward! Fight back! So we now know that Snape is the Half-Blood Prince because we've just finished watching Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And we also knew that anyway. Yes, we did. And he said it very plainly, hilariously plainly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the Half-Blood Prince. And I am all the Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm going to put this around the the table. Um, Who's going to shout up first when I ask what we all made of it? This time. Well, I I, I said, you know, my previous feelings on the film before it started, and they haven't changed, to be honest. Not really. I I think it's still way too bleak. It's still fairly lifeless. And I still don't really like some of the decisions it makes, but it's not a bad film. I just thought it was a bit meh. The thing with this film, so, like, it's the one with all of the lore stuff in it, so we figure it's setting up what's happening in Deathly Hallows. And all the other films up until this point, with maybe the exception of Order of the Phoenix, which has a bit of the prophecy stuff and the order going on and you learn a bit about the Wizarding War, they're all self-contained films and self-contained stories. So, you know, the first one, Harry does the whole, meets Voldemort with the mirror and they have a whole story going on there. Chamber of Secrets has a Chamber of Secrets. Prisoner of Azkaban has a series, and so on. So All of the films up until this point have their own continual plot for and books for this for that particular chapter in the story. I think that's one this of the one biggest strengths of Order of the Phoenix, that despite everything that's going on, it still manages to be its own story, Order this, of the Phoenix. This, doesn't, this, this film doesn't work unless it's followed by Deathly Hallows. This feels a little bit like the first five films are all kind of like their own, like you were saying, like their own kind of self-contained thing, whereas this feels like part one of three. Oh, we got to play catch-up and start doing a big story now. It finish. feels like part one of three. I mean... I really like certain aspects of that, but I was thinking about it during the film where the stuff is weird for the first time, I think. The stuff I really like about it is the stuff I don't like about it. It's really strange because, like, in The Philosopher's Stone, it all builds to... The, the main plot is, oh, there's someone trying to get a stone and there's going to be a big confrontation at the end. And then in the second one, it's like, oh, there's a snake on the loose in the castle trying to kill people. It's going to be a big confrontation at the end. 
And then the third film is like, oh, a serial killer's trying to get into the castle and it's going to be a big confrontation at the end. And then like the fourth film is like, oh, Voldemort's coming back and also there's a Triwizard tournament and it's going to be a big confrontation at the end. Fifth one, all oh, the Ministry's trying to pretend that Voldemort's not back and all oh, there's going to be a big confrontation at the end. Whereas this one, the whole point of the film is Harry trying to extract a memory. And that that's the whole plot. It's just Harry trying to extract a memory. It's the know. two towers of the Harry Potter films. That's a good description. Yeah, it's a good description. Well, the thing is, like, two towers has decisive moments for like. Well, there's that. There's the certain characters. The sorry, I'm trying not to be all spoiler heavy because I mean, we're doing there's, there's the stuff with the Ents and all that, but there's and there's Battle of Hamlet Deep as well. Yeah, there's Helm's Deep and like there's the stuff at Rohan at the beginning and. Yeah, but all that stuff is like precursor to. This is very much setting up the last two films. Yeah, a lot of the stuff in the previous Harry Potter films, like, they have their own story, but they still manage to set up stuff that's going to happen later on. Like, especially in Order of the Phoenix, like Andy was just saying, this feels like the middle child of a film that is full of middle films, but the other middle films manage to get it right, whereas this one just sort of muddles along and just does things. Well, Jake, going off what you said, where it's like, with the self-contained nature of all the other five, and it's like, the title is the story. Like, for the other five, it's like Philosopher's Stone, it's about the Philosopher's Stone. And it's like, even Order of the Phoenix, it's like about that group of, like, yeah, wizard, fighting wizard back, Avengers yeah. to fight, you know, to fight Voldemort. Half-Blood Prince, it's like, it's, it's it's a film, bit... this film's not about the Half-Blood Prince, but then I think, mm. what is this film actually about? It is about it trying to extract that memory. That, yeah. that is literally the whole point of the story. But that's not a story, that's an incident. But like, what, what's this actually about? It's not building, like I say, it's not building to a Harry big... Potter and the Half-Blood Prince as, like two things that appear in the film is kind of correct, rather than it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the answer, like, yeah. They're there together, they are both within the same timeline, in the same place, but they never actually meet. <laughs> the answer to your question, what is this film is about, is this film is about a series of very small and what seem like inconsequential plot points and that then lead up to something bigger in the next film. But that's not what you base a film on, at least not one, like... Yeah what is supposed to be a self-contained film if you were watching Harry Potter as someone very casual like Nor for example who isn't a huge fan but you know what happens if you used to pick any of the Harry Potter films except this one you'd be okay and be able to watch it on its own and like figure it out yeah. this one you'd just be like what the hell's going on like yeah. there's no fucking Fred here to follow <laughs> the Harry Potter film is kind of like an episode of Supernatural where you've got your main characters but then it's a new mystery every yeah. week like, the Sco- like Scooby-Doo yeah. you've got, you've got that mystery one, at some point to latch on yeah. so to take you through the story in the universe and guide you through yeah that. yeah whereas this one is like part one of rather than this is like definitely Hallows part minus one. Well, you do have you <laughs> do have that on, you do have that ongoing mystery of what's the whole deal with Snape and Draco? What are they doing? You have that, but then the Half Blood Prince aspect to it. Until you know that Snape is Half Blood Prince, which is at the very end of the film, that whole Half Blood Prince thing is an entirely separate. It's not something plot. they investigate. No, it, they, they never, there's never. You know how like I was thinking about this, where if they'd have found this in like the second film. They would have really tried to work out with that. You know, like they immediately go digging about Nicholas Flamel. Yeah. And it's like Hermione doesn't find anything in the restricted section and of the Half-Blood Prince. Stops. But she just stops. Hermione doesn't she really be deterred know. by that usually. She doesn't really know about the Half-Blood Prince, does she? Like no, in, in this. Ron kind of knows about it, but the I think the thing with you saying about they don't go investigating because it's just Harry. It's like it's a really isolated it's an obsession thing. And yeah. this whole film is a really isolated experience for Harry because, like, after he's lost the the rekindled family that he thought he had, he's just kind of rescinded into himself, mm. and he's like, nope. That nobody knows anything. I mean, at least so, so, on plot level, that um, I can see why you would take that out of it, but I just don't know. 
because I think the film is also a lot about Draco's isolation as well, and I feel like there's a there's a parallel that the film really could have spent a lot of time with, where Harry and Draco are both isolated but in opposite directions. Very much in and the it Kylo and Ray kind of way. Just <laughs> and it just doesn't. Because <laughs> my from memory, my favourite bits of this film were were all Draco's bits. I think Tom Felton's excellent in this, but he's not in it as much as no, I he's not. thought he was. He's not. He's very um, broody in this film, isn't he? He like, just kind of wanders into the room of requirements. <laughs> I think he's very good. That's not the way. <laughs> I think with the material he gets, he's very good. Yeah, he just kind of... But in terms of the stuff he actually gets to do, he just kind of... He wanders into Morgan and Burks at the beginning. There's a bit of a discussion about what might have happened. He spends the rest of the film kind of skulking in the background and walking into the Given room Given Harry dirty looks. And then at the end, he's in the astronomy tower. There's not a lot of... I feel like there was a... If the film... I mean, I know that... Um, in the end, you know, this is a major franchise, and David Yates, for all of that, I think he's a, a, a pretty solid director for these kinds of films. I think that's all he is. He's not got his own kind of. He doesn't ever really want to put his own stamp on it beyond like the color palettes and the lighting and stuff like that, and the um, wand battle sequences without any music. There's nothing really that's distinctively David Yates about this, and I feel like maybe. Um, a different kind of director might have looked at this and I mean I am only I'm applying hindsight to this but I feel like there was a weird chance for this film to be a bit kind of daring and kind of make Draco the protagonist a little bit not to the point where Harry is like an antagonist not, not like an antagonist but somebody that we because Draco's going through a lot like he's in way over his head so's Harry yeah and I feel like the what the film could have built to was Harry and Draco's confrontation with each other and you could make the plot of the film about how Harry and Draco are essentially having this little silent war with each other exactly yeah so and it just it spends a lot of time throwing in other bits and other bits of plot that don't really like this isn't like the Ron and Lavender stuff it's just it's okay, fine, it's it serves filler, a purpose it? to... It is filler. It, it serves a purpose to bring Hermione and Ron closer together, and I like um, the actress who plays Lavender Brown. I think she's really funny, and I think she's a good um, good bit of light relief. But it just means that this ends up feeling a bit like a scattered mid-season episode of a TV show. And, so, I mean, yeah. a, couple, a couple of the things you said there are like... Totally what I was talking about earlier when I said there's small decisions that are made <coughs> that to me kind of rip the heart out of the story and take away its kind of weight. Like what you said there about how this is this film is really Harry and Draco going head to head without ever really confronting each other and it seems to be building to that. That's why, to me, it feels so odd that Harry just stands there and watches while Draco turns up to, turn, to kill Dumbledore. It's so not in keeping with what's happening in the story. Dumbledore freezes him because he knows how he's going to run up and confront Draco. That's just what Harry would mm. do. So that's like an example where it's like it just feel, doesn't feel right. I and like the Hermione that. not investigating thing. That's, that's mm. a, a, an invention of the film, Cut for Time, where she investigates it. She finds this woman called Eileen Prince. She's like, it may be a tear, and everybody shouts her down. Turns out that's Snape's mum. She was one step away. She does mm. nearly figure it out, and she figures it out right after the end of the story. I feel like... If they'd have done it with hindsight in the films, I feel like it may have given it away if Dumbledore had frozen Harry so that he couldn't intervene. It may have given it away that Dumbledore... You know, like, 
I mean, obviously, I'm talking about a slightly different era here where if it was now, people would be obsessed about reading into it and trying to get as you know, extract as much information as possible and there'd be tons of Reddit threads and theories and stuff. And it's not like internet theorising wasn't a thing in 2009, but it was not as easy to access and see all the time and be in constant view of, and you wouldn't have clickbait sites turning Reddit threads into news articles and stuff. But I feel like if Dumbledore deliberately intervenes so that he kind of sets the circumstances for his own death, which he's doing anyway, but I feel like if he does that very obviously, then somebody would go, wait, why did Dumbledore kill Harry? Uh, not kill, uh, paralyse Harry before well, people he was did killed. do that. There was huge um, online speculation yeah. on why did he behave the way he did. That's and kind of, just that's kind of the point. It, it makes you like, want to watch the next one, whereas I think the film's effect, it just confuses you. I yeah, think what I think the film is going for is that it, in the end it's a helper situation and Dumbledore has no control. Yeah. But Go on. Vicky. Yeah, well... Vicky sat there in your Harry Potter glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Critiquing Harry Potter. <laughs> the, uh, I suppose, looking at it, but again, I'm coming from it from a book, pan, a book fan point of view rather than a film fan. You'll find it's increasingly difficult not to do that. Yeah, it's... Um, the way Dumbledore speaks to Draco is so patronising. Like, oh, uh, it was the vanishing cabinet. Ingenious. Like, yeah. why would why would Dumbledore say the word ingenious without trying to be a patronising shit about it? <laughs> I think he's just trying to it's, stall him. Yeah, he is. Like, he's totally trying to stall him. him up a bit and yeah. be like, he's trying to you're do too that good for thing, this shit, Draco. Yeah, where he's like, he's... he's it's a little bit of his own ego where he's like, I, t- I can't tell him that I knew, but I totally knew. But I can't, I can't tell him that I knew, but I totally knew. I, t- I totally knew he was going to do this, and I knew about the vanishing. That's Dumbledore. Cabinet. He knows everything. Yeah, yeah, he? he knows. He knows everything, and he needs everything that has transpired has <laughs> happened by <laughs> my design. Draco to think that Draco bested him. He he needs to, and he's trying so hard to like not be like me 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 me, <laughs> but like. Well, I don't think he really knew. Badly. About the vanishing, I don't think he knew about the vanishing cabinet, but I think he. Knew no, I think he knew about the vanishing way. cabinet. I don't think he knew about the unbreakable vow with Severus. I think he did because I oh, think Snape probably told him. Possibly. Yeah, that was the. Plan. And I actually, I, I think that's the thread, literally. You know, the the thread that binds it all together. I would have personally, if I was J.K. Rowling, I would have called this story Harry Potter and the Unbreakable Vow because that's really that's the heart of what's happening in this story. Snape yeah. made this vow where he has to now at least appear to have permanently sided with Voldemort and yeah. how does he do it? And I suppose Harry has to so. make that promise to Dumbledore as well when he's feeding him the potion he's like, you can't let me not do this you have to keep, oh, you have to keep going It's quite sad, it's sad, yeah. I mean it's sadder it's, in the it's book horrible, because it's, it? but even in this it's quite awful In the book yeah. it's excruciating to read like, I, like I, I've got this like pit in my stomach when it when it started because I was like I just remember reading this and like my stomach just twisting round when I read it and I was like oh this is awful I hate it I hate all of it I hate but it but then so when Dumbledore comes and conjures a fiend fire and gets rid of it in the book it just like it's so cool yeah. and he kind of I think that's cool in the film I get some scene, of it. I think well, stuff out I, of this is great you know what I, I know everything from the everything from Harry um, taking the uh, liquid look everything everything onwards I, I love it. Yeah, but it's All a lot of, of build up to a good half an hour in it. Yeah, the last half hour is a really good. It's kind of it, it feels a little bit like um, if the whole film had that kind of like 
not urgency, but there is a real sense of urgency in the last half an hour that yeah. isn't there in the rest of the film. It's, it's like, just oh kind of, shit, we've suddenly got to do something in this film. Yeah, which yeah. means that it doesn't rise. That that the film rises to the point where Slughorn gives Harry a memory. Yeah. And then there's a whole great kind of epilogue section where all of this action happens, and it, the action that's that there's a lot of foreshadowing towards the action that happens like with the photo of the cliff and the memories and but there's not a lot of build up there's not a lot of st- structure it's not like everything's pushing towards Harry and Dumbledore going off to get this Horcrux and then come back yeah. and it's like not it's, 60 in it just like yeah there's there little references <laughs> so that you can piece things together and just kind of go oh that's where that's been going but like mm. the main kind of narrative thread is more about the kids trying to act like normal people but being interrupted by the greater conflict and also Harry trying to get the memory from Slughorn and I'm not sure you can you can make a, a decent like as I, as I think this film is I think you can make a decent character based film out of this yeah there are nice character moments in the film it's just I don't, I don't know, like I just, what this film does to Hermione. N- as no, well. no, it turns like as far as character goes, she just turns into a bit of a blubbery mess in this film, and yeah, they she's go too far with that. They go Way too, far, too with far, and she's totally not that. She's not like laying it on very thick. Yeah, in this film, she's like viciously jealous, and she's just never that character. But I mean, how much of that is the film, and how much of it is the book? Because she does the whole conjuring birds while crying over Ron because she sees her with in with lavender, and then uses the birds to attack Ron so that is in the book yeah totally I don't think she has that whole weepy conversation with Harry though about how she's in love with Ron I kind of like the conversation with Harry because as one as Rob said during the film it sort of confirms that first of all they're not going to get together yeah it hammers that home and second of all you just don't get much interaction between Hermione and Harry in these films because as a trio it's always Ron and Harry doing stuff or Ron and Harry and Hermione doing stuff or Hermione going off and basically saving the world on her own or Hermione and Ron for like a little bit yeah, or in the first film, not Hermione so much straight. exploration of the um, Hermione and her relationship, and I think a lot of that is down to the fact that they don't want to make it seem like they're um, they're trying to build up a romance. Because naturally, when it comes to films, if you're building a relationship between a male and a female character, it must be because those characters are going to get together and be in love. And so they're obviously trying to avoid Harry and Hermione from getting that sort of feel by just not having them interact much. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're still best friends, so they still need to interact. And this is one of the rare occasions in the Harry Potter series where we actually see them having an honest and nice conversation with each yeah. other. Yeah. And they both, they're both, what's really nice about it is they're both on the same level, they're both going through the same thing, and Hermione knows that, and can see that with him, um, Harry and Ginny, and Harry's starting to understand that's what's happening with Hermione. Yeah. And they can just be two friends that share the same feelings and the same conflicts with each other, and are there for each other to get each other through it. And I really like that scene. Mm. I, think I, it's don't, nice. I actually don't have a big problem with it really not with that scene anyway it's more the overall kind of romance angle of this film yeah. that bothers me because you, the two big romances in the film you've got Ron and Lavender which just doesn't have anything to do with anything else in the story so it's just like you could cut the whole subplot I just think it's just it doesn't really concern me whereas at Harry, Harry and Ginny as well <laughs> they just have no. zero chemistry every scene between them is utterly boring to watch like I and I think, think I don't even think it's the the fault of the writing. I hate to say it, but I think Bonnie Wright is just a really poor actress. I think that's kind of the charm of it, though, because they're both like horrendously awkward dogs, wooden, wooden children. Yeah, w- like they're just 
they just like don't know what to do in each other's presence. So they're, they're like really like woodenness and kind of yeah. like flatness of the conversation is just out of sheer. I can't look like the only thing I can do I to stop myself from being. To, no, I know it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably not, but in in my head to make myself feel better, I think in the way that they're just kind of like, oh, if I don't do anything, she won't know. Mm. if I don't do anything she won't know and he, she's the same like if I don't do anything he won't know Plus, even and then they can be friends without it being like a potential thing then without, whereas like if it, if yeah if you're building you know, up with some great love then it doesn't work at all yeah, that's exactly. the problem and yeah. it, you know at the end of the day this is sort of the risk you take when it comes to hiring actors from the age of 11 and then exactly. deciding to keep yeah. them exactly. for the entire yeah. series yeah. Yeah. some of them are going to turn out to be pretty bad on this occasion it didn't work out I don't think they realised Ginny was going to have such a big role in the last few books no that's true because of so. but there's nothing stopping the director from recasting the role no, see that I wouldn't Except have liked. The whole I wouldn't base. have liked that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you oh just put God, can you imagine? There would have been absolute uproar if Ginny was just suddenly a different person. I can't, she is. I can't help but but notice yeah, no. that no. <laughs> <laughs> but I know this is probably down to the fact that you don't really have any particularly strong feelings about this film. No. Unless you have done. No, it was just a bit nothing. Yeah. Like there that's was, precisely it. There was no plot really apart from the one memory that they had to retrieve. Can I ask you on the point of Harry yeah. and Ginny, as someone who's pretty like casual to this yeah. and hasn't been sold on it already by the books, like would you have believed Harry and Ginny as a couple? No. Not at all? No. I miss Cho Chang. Like you guys were saying, I think him, <laughs> I think him and Luna would oh. have like, eventually, yeah. just from the little things in this film, and like you'd, you'd imagine that they'd kind of develop. I was good when they over did a couple of films, but yeah. Is there She's any? Really sweet. Is <laughs> Luna end up with Neville? Yes. Yeah. Is there any point us doing a favourite character because we're all just going to yes. Luna? Oh yes, yeah, Slughorn. I, oh, I think Jim Broadbent was great. Lavender. Yeah, you like it. Well, I love it. Everyone's got a different one, so let's let's do it. Go on, tell us why. Let's why why Hilarious. Just the bit where she sat staring at Ron Hermione. Grinding it on the table. Gosh, she's great. She is a great actress as well. Yeah, she's so good. She senses my presence. (laughs) No, no, she she does have a great deal of... um, (laughs) She does have a great deal of, like, unbearable intensity. Um, Yeah. No, no, she's not my absolute favourite character, but I feel like she's a bit of a breath of fresh air. Um, I think she's worth... Like, it's it's my least favourite storyline in the film, but I would... I would still keep it because of her. Yeah. I feel like she's just like the polar opposite of Hermione, where Hermione's not not a very intense person in that she's, kind she, of. She's also the polar opposite of Ginny. That's what I find fun. That mm. like Harry and Ron both have love interests in this film, and like Ron goes for like the most weird off the wall nutcase ever, and <laughs> Harry goes for the most boring girl in the world. <laughs> I don't think that. I think that's the. the the thing that I got from it was that Ron didn't go out like choose lavender. She like actively pursued him. Yeah, and she he decided went, that they were going to get yeah, lavender. He, he he Ron and Mister Potter. Okay, that it was just was just taken along for this lavender brown shaped ride. Like, like she just snugs him. It's snugs. in my head now. They use that word a lot in this film. Yeah. All of you, you've all got to hang out with me after this podcast, and I'm going to be saying snog forever. So it's it's it's, it's your fault. Oh, he's fancy a snog. 
<laughs> no, I do. I feel like the, I think the, it's their just relationship. Taken on a ride with it. Yeah, the like relationship actively. begins when he's on the high of the Quidditch game, and yeah, and she just goes of, for it and smacks him in the face with her face. And then she? I think when it becomes clear, because it's immediately after that happens that it becomes very clear to Ron that Hermione's very jealous and angry at them, and Ron's response to that is to be a bit spiteful. Yeah. And yeah, it's in, yeah. It is interesting in that. From a pretty early stage, like you say, he's actually using Lavender. He's totally aware of what's going on with Hermione. And she's using Cormac McLaggen as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what that's quite Bro, can I, can I propose he is the le- my least favourite character in all of Harry Potter? Cormac McLaggen. Mr. Creepy Rape Man. Oh, I stop really, licking your fingers! I really enjoy his performance. Whatever his name is, yeah, he's good, he's a good looking chap, and he, 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 I really enjoy his very like. like his Dick Ortali, he gives this, like, <laughs> he gives this like banter lad kind of performance, which you hardly ever see anything like that in Harry Potter. That's I think it's really fun. Yeah, because yeah, it's lads, lads, lads performance. Yeah. I, heard, I heard she uses her mouth a lot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he goes like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hate it. I hate it. Yo, 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 yo. Like Victor Crumb was almost there, but he was like creepy on the silent side rather than creepy on their like lads 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 side and he was quite sweet when he, he was yeah, yeah I thought from Edison in, silent charm in the, fir- right in the first me. instance when he just follows her around and she's like it's a bit weird really he just watches me work but then like afterwards like as the film goes on he gets nicer and nicer but with Cormac the more the film goes on he gets worse and worse what, what's weird with Victor Crumb though is that Hermione's like 14, 15 in yeah. that film he's, like, he's 18. like 18 yeah, yeah. so anyway it's strange <laughs> can I can I say about Slughorn I think Jim Broadbent like oh honey yeah. oh honey Slughorn <laughs> let's talk about Slughorn no seriously Obviously he's great. Like I, th- I think he sort of saves the first half of the film because yeah. Yeah. He, he he's just Slughorn's really head bursting out of a coach gives me life. <laughs> he just totally gets like the character totally. He, he's like perfectly cast. Yeah. Um and he's just he, I, I love how he's sort of painted ambiguously at first of like he's not a bad guy but he's also not like your nice cuddly warm teacher. You don't he's get got a past. He's got more to him than just being your teacher. He's yeah. a complete self-preservationist. He really yeah. is. And yeah. like he's he's totally unbiased he's not with the good guys he's not with the bad guys he only cares about himself and he plays that perfectly like yeah. it doesn't make him a bad guy because all he cares about is himself I do think and all he, he cares about is his collection make him sympathetic though yeah like, totally his collection isn't full of bad people no but he's got he's but got, he's got, a, got some bad people in it and some good people he's got a past it. it's like that quote from Order of the Phoenix which is in the book and the film I think which I think is a great quote which is when Sirius says the world's not divided into good people and death eaters yeah. yeah, and they do a lot of that in the last three, four films. Yeah, where you know, Slughorn is kind of the ultimate example of that, where they show actually this guy has made big mistakes and has helped Voldemort along the way. Yeah, but he's a, nice, a good um, guy. Yeah, there's a nice tell where he says that the Death Eaters have been trying to recruit him for months. Um, <laughs> yeah, they've been trying to recruit him for over a year. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And when he says that they've been trying to recruit him, it's like wait, recruit? Not trying to catch you. For trying to recruit you and yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean because it's Jim Broadbent and he's everybody's friendly, lovely grandfather. You know, it's like eventually I think you know where the role is going. But he's totally the medium place of Harry Potter, isn't he? Like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. to be fair, like you know, in the last um, film he does turn up and he is like, yeah. hey, I'm on the good side. And <laughs> it's when he makes that chosen. comment about Muggleborns at the beginning and Harry yeah. being the self-righteous <coughs> guy he is. As soon as Slughorn says something that appears to discriminate against Muggleborns, Harry's total like OMG and like goes on his high horse about it. But then Slughorn's like, well actually no, 
I don't discriminate because I'm a nasty guy. I, discri- I, I said that because, like, it's impressive that she's come from a non-magical mm. family and she was good. Like, it's impressive she's had to work harder. It's like, well, yeah, people have got more depth to them than Harry just making snap judgments of them. And I'm glad to see that coming out. And I think Jim Broadbent's performance is really, yeah, really and good. It's showing the multiple facets to him. Right it's now. sort of a good way of combating the Hulk as Harry sees a world of sort of a you know you're good or you're evil sort of thing yeah. it's actually no things are a bit more complex than that Harry and it's a good sort of way of introducing that sort of concept yeah. it really makes me wish that other characters who are kind of a little overly simply portrayed in these films I wish we got to see a, and the books as well I wish we got to see a bit more of like what really makes them tick like Filch for example or yeah. like I don't know some who else is just a sort of nasty piece of work I, I wanted history on peeves or, people, Where, or, or, Lucy, or Lucius, for example, who I know is not in this film. But these people who you're like, well, they're not just pure evil. They're not just nasty. There must be something going on to with To be them. fair, though, you kind of... You, we have one of those characters that's already been running through the series anyway in Snake. Yeah, true, in true, that true. He's not good or evil. He's just driven by his love for Lily Potter. And that's what gets him to the end of where he is because he feels like he has to protect And I suppose you yeah. also get one another one in the last film that's not exactly a well-developed entry, but... She is a late entry, which is uh, Narcissa Malfoy. She's a bit yes. more... Yes, She's because she yeah. turns at the last second, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's... There, there, there are um, a few of those. I mean, I suppose Lupin a little bit in the third film because of the way that, like, everything's framed around him getting serious into the castle until you find everything out. But, like, that, I mean, there is that whole scene in the Shrieking Shack where, like, the tension is built entirely on the fact that the adults just won't tell the kids what's going on. Yeah, it's all based around let's the adults. kill him. No, no, no specifics. Yeah. Just let's kill him. <laughs> it was all based around the adult prejudice. That, like, that bit of the film with, with Remus. Like, all the other teachers mm. are a bit, like, weird around Remus because they know he's a werewolf. And mm. they're all like, why is Dumbledore let a dangerous yeah. like person into the school? He's gonna harm the kids. And they they like distance themselves really obviously from him and you can see that in the way that d- d- I mean MVP David Thulis throughout the whole series. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally, my, yeah. oh my god, totally. I love him. But the way he holds himself in the prisoner of Azkaban, you can see the kind of like like how lonely he is there because nobody will speak to him except Harry and Ron and Hermione and whatever and then when it comes out that he is a werewolf uh, and everyone's like well we told you blah, blah, blah. and it's like nah. obviously he's a very 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 good person he just does this one thing to him that's like not ideal yeah I always um, thought it was quite telling that he resigned in that film rather than yeah before he was sacked he just he took himself away yeah if he was your if it, assuming it's not Lavender or Slughorn who would be your favourite character in this uh, I mean you can't say Luna. She has not been said yet. Or a Snape's not been said, and I know you're a big Alan Rickman fan. I'll be honest. I think Draco's a good, he's bloody good in this film. Yeah, like I think this is Tom Felton's best performance I do throughout well. the whole. Even if it is quite small. Yeah, I mean. It, Better get small than seventy seconds in the film, though. Mm. It's some of it's a bit um, panto, and some of it's a little bit. But the blubbering not, in the toilet scene. No, not the blubbering. The bit with the feather, where he's like picks up the feather and he like stares at it and you're like cool <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it like, this is a feather yes we know it was a white bird like <laughs> no I like him I think that he um... it's still a nice shot though but I think he did really well in this film because like he doesn't have loads of lines 
No. Um, I think he's better when he doesn't about... have lines. I, I think I think he's not great with dialogue. I think he's really good expressively though. His facial expression, like yeah. he's got real like angst, like in the way that he holds. Like you can see like veins popping you out. You feel bad for him. Yeah, way he's in he's real sympathy. Yeah, like he's... you can see that he's really tormented about the, the giving point. like Katie the the, the necklace and uh, like planting the bottle with slug yeah. on you can see it's like really doing a number on him because you can see like I don't know whether it was like a thing that they asked him to do or whether it was just a thing that kind of happened while he was going through this role but when you go from the very start of the film to the very end he gets more gaunt mm. like his face I like think that becomes, is intentional, yeah. yeah totally and I think it's really really interesting well, what, like, it takes him to a sort of logical extreme as well. It's again this whole he's not he's neither good or evil thing. It's yeah. like when he plants the mead and he nearly kills Ron and then they have like later on where he appears like grief stricken in the bathroom over it and stuff it's like yeah he hates Ron but he doesn't want to kill him Yeah, he's not that bad he, he is just a kid at the end of the day he doesn't just want to kill like, people he is in yeah. over his head and I think like the best moment in it is when uh, Tom Felton's performance is just that snapshot where um, he turns around suddenly in the bathroom away from the sink and there's just that look of terror yeah. on his face and it's like it's like this I know exactly what I've done. And I've been sussed. And, yeah, and it's all been kind of worked out and I'm in way over my head, but I also can't not do it. And there's, it just feels like this huge burden of responsibility and I feel like that's why David Yates likes to like, that likes to like people in this way because... I'm not like them as a case, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, but at the same time, like I, I feel like... You were saying that he looks more gaunt as the film goes on. If you like people's faces in the way that this film does, where you can sort of see every crease and every bump on it, then the gaunt look it pulls comes itself across out, a little yeah. bit more. I mean, I think it's not just to make Draco look more gaunt. There are thousands of other characters in this film who are... But I feel like there are certain, certain scenes that really benefit from it. There are certain scenes that struggle a little bit because it's not always... Like we were saying at the very, very beginning, you're not always totally clear what you're supposed to be looking at when they're fixing the house and it's all kind of ransacked. It's a problem all the way for me. But, um, but I think once the nighttime scenes are out of the way at the beginning, like they're at the castle and everything, it's not really much of a problem for me. It's just, maybe I'm just used to it. It's very washed out. That colour scheme, it's like somebody's just gone like that with the saturation. Like exactly. Just pulled the saturation down throughout the whole film. It's like this huge metaphor from everything was fine to everything the wizarding feels, world may collapse too, it feels too basic far in this yeah, totally I far. think it feels like I'm not a director but like that sort of technique feels like baby's first directing a film yeah like, totally. it's like <laughs> so we need to make this film bleak well, this is a kids film uh, well, at this point, I would say it's more of a teen drama sort of yeah. film. But, I so. um, like, the director's thinking, right, we're going to make this seem bleak and darker than the rest of the films, so how are we going to do that? I know, let's literally make it dark and lighting and turn down the saturation to, like, minus 20 yeah. to yeah. make it look bleaker, like, literally. So yeah. it's, it's a way of the director trying to um, manufacture emotion and trying to manufacture a, a, a feeling for a film by just turning down, down the colour knob and it's just it's not good directing that's not how films should that, be directed and plus it, that may be his directorial, directorial style but this is just one of the things that when you're working on a franchise you do kind of have to work with the hand that you're dealt and one of the things that Harry Potter is so known for is the level of detail that is in these films especially anyone who's been to the studio at all well when you see like 
all the props and things and oh, you see how reason. much detail is there and in this film if I was like a prop maker or a set designer or whatever I would be so frustrated watching the finished product because you can't see yeah. so much of it it's just like out of focus or not lit and there's like pieces of paper stuck on the wall or there's like things that people are reading or costumes that you just almost physically can't see them and it's like well this franchise is known for detail don't turn down the contrast so much that you can't see it. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right to me. There are other really obvious directorial steps that he takes in this that I just feel like are just heavy-handed and a bit ham-fisted. Does that, I noticed it really abruptly this time, and I, to be fair, I've not noticed it before, but the way that he tries to induce fear into the scene when the zombies come up, by when Harry stumbles back, he takes like what must be 15 to 20 micro shots of Harry like stumbling back, but he, shaky cam. He, not he, shaky cam, but literally different shots every uh, single time of Harry in different positions, stumbling in different positions. Presumably to give a sort of jittery feeling because Harry's stumbling back and he's scared and he's trying to incite terror. But it just feels like weird, like a really strange choice of directing. First of all, I don't like people directors using loads of shots anyway because I just I just think, think it's a bit quick unnatural. Cuts, yeah. Quick cuts really annoy me like that. Yeah, and second of all... Baz Luhrmann makes me feel very dizzy. Again, it gives... like. <laughs> Obviously, the whole point of directing is to manufacture a particular emotion so that somebody feels something through the way that you're doing, making the film look on screen. Yeah. But when you're doing it in a way where it's really noticeable, where we're all talking about the lighting and the colouring here and about how obvious it is, when you're making it obvious, it's not doing the job because you're not going to be feeling like that. You're not going to feel dark or scared simply because the screen's dark. You're just going to notice that the screen's dark and it's not going to heighten the emotion. It's just going to make you look at the directing of the film itself, which is not what we should be doing here. We should be examining the film more broadly. I I think, you know, the first few films in particular, I think it's like, not to, I'm not saying that the directors have an easy job or anything, but with Harry Potter, the ideas and the writing so often, it's so strong that it sort of speaks for itself and the tone comes out naturally. Christopher Columbus as a director is pretty basic. You don't need to artificially push it into physical darkness. You don't need to push it into like, you know, super like over the top, like documentary style filming. Dumbledore you don't need to make it that You don't real. need to make it dark yeah. artificially. It's dark. Great example is Goblet of Fire when Cedric dies and they do it just exactly how it is in the book. He just dies in one shot, they move on, carry on. Mm-hmm. The scene carries on. It really hits hard because the, the event is so shocking that you don't need to linger on it in a really cinematic way. Yeah. It just, the scene keeps going and you're like, oh my God, Cedric just died. It totally works. Whereas, like, welcome when Sirius dies or when Dumbledore dies, and it's like, you get slow-mo, you get shaky cam, everybody pauses while there's a long piece of music that's just pure strings and nothing else. It's like, come on, come on, let the story speak for itself. Let's have some, dy- dy- you know, dynamism to the story. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's one exception in this film where the, the story does speak for itself a little bit, and it does feel genuinely quite scary, is when that... Um, Girls cursed by the necklace. Katie Bell. Katie Bell. Yeah, yeah. Flung around everywhere. It really freaks me out that bit. Yeah. Well, it did do when I was like. It helps that it can but... be desaturated because everything's snow, so it can't be false. But it works really well because Katie Bell's wearing this bright red coat, so she yes. like really stands yeah, out. She's yeah. got jet black hair as well, which is all floating around and like very exorcist. It looks like exorcist. That's yeah. exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. And she's just—it's her isolated on screen, and it's. All of, it's that punch that it's all about her and you need to see what's happening to her right now and then that thud when she hits the floor is horrid yeah it's so good though like the, the whole bit was 10 out of 10 and because that's that's a scary thing to happen yeah. so it, it's sort of, like you said it just sort of speaks for itself it just works really well mm. 
Um, yeah, you, uh, you two, Rob and Jake, you haven't yet done a favourite character. Is there anyone else who we haven't mentioned? Oh, yeah, yeah mine was like covered by Draco, Slughorn, oh, Lavender. Yeah. Well, I, the yeah. only person that we've not talked about here is Luna, and I feel like she's just the best. Yeah, but she, she was. I think she was our favourite in Order of the Phoenix as well, to be fair. She's, she? she's the favourite of every film that she is in, because she's amazing. She gets the funniest <laughs> line of the movie, though, which we all laughed out loud at, was it? Which I completely forgot this line even exists. What, the sleepwalker? She said, yeah, uh, oh, uh, I've never been here while I'm awake. I sleep. Walk. That's why I wear shoes to bed. Yeah. <laughs> and she just turns up in the lion hat. <laughs> it's because you know, it was so funny. Is that the way of Ada Lynch plays? It, she's always deadpan. Dead she yeah. never like plays up to the laughs. She just like it's totally serious. She's, well, just, she's got that like content smile on her face all the time, and she's just like. Mm. That's, yeah. a, that's what the character's like. Like she's yeah. not playing it for laughs. She's just whimsical. Yeah. yeah. Um, Vanessa and Gavin and Stacey. Yeah. She never plays up to the laughs. She just like. The fact that she's not laughing is what's funny. Yeah. Bit of an interesting, well, not an interesting throwback. It's probably not very interesting at all, but it just occurred to me. <coughs> is it which, which film was it where um, somebody stole all of Luna's shoes and they hung them up? Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix. Well, well, it makes perfect sense then. In Order of the Phoenix, her shoes are all hidden at all over Hogwarts. So why would she not wear her shoes to bed in this film? Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good show actually. So that yeah. she she doesn't have her she she's, she's got them. at least one pair of shoes because she's sleeping in them. That's true. Oh. Unless someone steals them off her feet during the night. Oh, <laughs> I just made myself feel bad. Why did I do that? Um, while while we're kind of on favourite bits and favourite scenes, um, Nor, do you have a particular sort of favourite sequence through this? I wouldn't say it was a favourite, but something that I think was done well was Dumbledore drinking the, the stuff out of the, the... I don't know what it was called. In I agree. Cave. I don't know what it's called either. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. I don't know if it's got a name. It's some sort of weird font. No, I agree. And why was it your favourite scene, not? I just think it was done really well. You well, not your favourite, but you know. Well, yeah. I mean, you could see the pain on Dumbledore's face throughout, and like it just it was just awful to watch, which I think made it so good. What just do we all think it does? That drink, because they never actually say what it is. Yeah, that we it were does. talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's kind of implied through his expression that he's in a lot of pain, and I think that it's implied through some of his dialogue that there are voices in his head telling him that he's a failure and a mistake. And yeah, I don't think it's physical pain. I think it is more kind of. I think it may be in the book. We get a bit more detail in that the more he drinks, the more infantile he becomes, and he becomes more like a child. Yeah. And he drinks it towards the end, where he's literally like. Gaga goo goo having to be maybe it makes you relive the past or something because Dumbledore's quite, got quite a dark past. possibly makes you um, relive the like worst memories of your past yeah, yeah because like obviously the of a like that time you're in school yeah. and accidentally told the call this yeah. your mum yeah. <laughs> well, I mean obviously like, it's not my favourite scene it's just you know there are lots of little things there are lots of little details throughout this film that having seen 7 and 8 you're like ah ah like you say lots of lore stuff lots of like little pieces of information that are going to become way more important later on and given what you find out about Dumbledore in film seven about everything that happened to his sister and how that came about and like if it does make you relive the past, I think everything that has happened, there is a lot of regret in Dumbledore's life and there is a lot of sort of like stuff that was nearly sort of evil and stuff when he was in his misspent youth, as it were. Um and so if you had to relive that I think you would be in the sort of position where you would kinda of sit there going, Kill me! Kill me and I mean, I think this film does a really good job of, especially, I mean, one of the reasons I really like the final act is that if you were someone who'd never read the books and you were seeing this for the first time, you would be in a kind of position where it's like, shit, what, what do they do now? Like, because the big, the, the guy who always saves the day and is always reliable and very powerful, and it's like, they've, they've lost, 
It's like in chess, they've kind of like lost their queen. It's like Jedi. Will. Luke Skywalker's dead. What now? Yeah, yeah a little bit. Yeah, it's yeah. and I feel like they've lost the backup plan. Like yeah. the backup plan is gone. They have to. Dumb, do this yeah, on their own Dumbledore now. is your trump card, and that's it. It's now. the trump card. That's a much yeah. better analogy. And like it's, it, yeah, it, I, I think it does a really good job of that. And it's, it starts in that scene by the lake where it's like, okay, Dumbledore, you, Mister Impressive, what? What are you doing there, Albus? You know, come on, <laughs> come back around, please. You know, can you can you get back to your normal self? And it's just you know, and it makes Harry feel totally sort of like alone, and he feels very exposed. And I think that this film does a really good job of um, making Harry feel um, Harry and Draco. This is what I kind of what I was talking about with the parallel that the film doesn't really explore that Draco and Harry are weighing over their heads with what they've been asked to do, and now Dumbledore is gone. And I mean, uh, Dumbledore dying is one of those things that has to happen, really, doesn't it? It's like it, it's, it's mm-hmm. just part of a coming of age story, isn't it? That yeah. the old wise mental figure they have to die so that the hero can be the hero. Yeah. So when you think, yeah, I think in retrospect now, like it's a huge shock when Dumbledore. It's very dies, early, though. but he does have to die. He does have to die. I think. I think in terms of the film, in terms of the books, it's not that early because it's the end of the penultimate book, and it's like it's the cliffhanger. But like in terms of the films. You've still got a good two films left, mm. and it's like, yeah, Dumbledore isn't even in the last two films of this. Like, there is a whole quarter of this story that doesn't have Dumbledore in it as a living character. And no, the whole, no, I was going to say something really bitchy about Michael Gamble, then. I was going to say there's a whole three quarters of this <laughs> that doesn't have Dumbledore. Boom. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, to be honest, I, I mean, I really. I mean, there have been issues with Michael Gamble's portrayal of. Dumbledore and we've talked about you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? and we talked about it, especially in the Goblet of Fire episode where I feel like he overplayed something that was in the script and it, that's how it came across in this he feels a lot more serene a lot calmer a lot more like the old wise guy who kind of knows what's going on still feels mean um, though and I'm not sure why I, I still think, think he was, yeah he doesn't well, feel very friendly I think no it's like I was saying before with Malfoy he still sounds really patronising even when he's trying to yeah and it's just the way I imagine Dumbledore is just kindly old nice man that's very wise and like the first two films and Michael Gambon I don't know what it is about him I don't know if it's just Michael Gambon and his voice but every time he says something it just feels like he's saying it meanly like <laughs> mean yeah are, that's the thing though it's he just not, it's not an insult it against Michael Gambon I think he might just be inherently miscast because like you wouldn't cast Clint Eastwood as like the Doctor. You know, you need you, if you can't. Some people are just they are friendly people, or some people just come across as authoritative people, and they're not so nicey nicey. Yeah. Some people just don't fit certain roles, and I think Michael Gammon, you know, this is his best effort. But I think, despite you know giving a really good performance in this one, to me, he just isn't ever going to be Dumbledore. I think the casting director just thought, who's old, who can make a good make look good in a beard. I think they would have gone through more of a rigorous process. Who's, who's got good gravitas? <laughs> yeah, but he'll probably try a bit harder than that. Maybe. Maybe. Well, the rumor is he wanted Ian McKellen, but he was already busy. Playing another wizard. Playing another wizard. Hasn't Ian McKellen since said that like he wouldn't no. have ever played Dumbledore because he just said he's already played one wizard. He just doesn't feel like he could do it. He didn't doesn't didn't feel like he could do Dumbledore justice as well or I something. Know, when uh, when Richard Harris was dying, he asked McKellen, Peter O'Toole to do it. Oh right, which okay. never happens. Don't no. know why, but yeah, I really I love Ian McKellen. I think he's a fantastic actor. He's phenomenal. 
but I don't think it would have been a good double though. It would have been too Gandalf-y. It's just like, once you've been Gandalf, you can't be another wizard. It's not, <laughs> it's like, Ga- see, Gandalf is very much a kind of know-it-all as well. It may, which makes it all the more awesome when he does have his brief moments of losing his rag and throwing shade at people, like the way he talks to Umbridge sometimes in Order of the Phoenix after she's sacked Trelawney yeah. and stuff like that it's like the moments where he actually does genuinely dislike someone where he's like bitch please it works really well uh, but when Michael Gambon's got this general air of being madly irritated like all the time it doesn't work as well mm-hmm. I think because um, because I feel like I'm going to give this film a higher uh, rating than everybody else um, I'd like to have a short 5-10 minute segment where I go through and talk about all of the things I feel, think this film does really, really, really well. Go on, okay. Um, so you know how I was saying that um, this film, everything I like about this film is also stuff I don't like about it and it was a really weird, um, it was a weird feeling I had and it was a weird comment to make so I'm going to try and articulate and work my way through it. This film is slow because there's not much in terms of as we were saying there's not much in terms of there's not an overall kind of like arc to the story that makes sense and makes it feel like a big um there's no final confrontation that wraps this film up in a bow the the moment that this film builds towards is immediately servicing future stories because they have to get this piece of information so that they can go and do all the other things in the next couple of films. It's not like a, once this is resolved, we can then start again next year. Like It has to... Clearly, when J.K. Rowling was writing this and when they were making this film, they, they were very... They very much had the end in mind. And so you have to always... Unfortunately, I feel like this film does have to kind of service the end. And it means that it's always, if, if a film is serving something else, then it's not going to be the best that it could have been on its own terms so you know with that in mind I feel like this film at least in with Order of the Phoenix the kids were taking their own initiative and you know kind of joining in the war and like you know our parents have did the last war and now we're gonna do this one and whereas in the sixth film it feels a little bit like they're trying to focus on things that aren't to do with the war. They're all quite horny. They're all into sports again. Quidditch makes its first big appearance in a little while. And Quidditch is used to expand the relationships between Ron, Lavender, McLagan. Cormac McLagan. Yeah, that's it. Um, and, and Hermione and you know little dynamics that play out on the field of Quidditch reflect quite nicely in the, the way that they are in the classrooms. You get a couple of new characters in like uh, Katie Bell, we never met her before, and it just, it likes to, it, I think this film does a really good job of like padding out the the sort of the general camaraderie between the students, where they all have little, in sort of have all have like little relationships, and like Harry's not exactly best friends with Katie Bell, but he's clearly on a level with her where he can approach her and sort of say, hey, you know that thing that happened, do you mind telling me about it? And Harry, and Katie's like, yeah, I would tell you, but I can't remember. And... There's, there's even, like, additional Slytherin characters that aren't just, like, faceless. Like, that girl, I don't know her name. Was it Penny? Pansy? Pansy. I think her name was Pansy. Where, um, Draco's, like, really laying into Hogwarts, and he's like, oh, God, what a pathetic excuse for school, you know? And he's on the train, and then... But she, this girl, seems genuinely concerned. Like, she seems like a real person. Like, 
what's that supposed to be? She's his girlfriend. Yeah, it's, right. So, you know, so the, the, there are these people and it feels... It doesn't do as good a job as Goblet of Fire or um, Prisoner of Azkaban, but this one, I feel like out of all of the films... I mean, the last two don't really count because the seventh one isn't in the school and the eighth one, yes, it's in the school, but it's a big battle. And in terms of the actual overall timeline of the last film, it's like, what, a week? two weeks so you know not a whole year so with that in mind if you just kind of take the first six um, films as you know like the yearly episodic stuff this is probably third best in terms of making it feel like a normal school like it doesn't feel like a formal boarding school they all the, they all still wear their uniforms in their own way and I feel like Order of the Phoenix has too much to juggle to really make it feel that way, and I have my own kind of reservations about the first two films anyway. So I feel like Prisoner of Azkaban gets it spot on. Goblet of Fire does its best to kind of lift from what the Prisoner of Azkaban did to make it feel like a normal school, like they're all wearing their own clothes and that kind of thing. And then this one, I, you rarely see them wearing their own clothes unless they're outside, like at, um, what do you call it, the Three Broomsticks. They're rarely in their own clothes in this, so it's not quite as lived in or is real but it does a decent enough job with like the relationships to make it feel that way i think that a lot of the stuff that it, there's not enough of it but i feel like the stuff that does happen with draco is great i feel like the stuff that happens between again stuff that i think they needed a bit more of and needed to go a bit deeper into in order to make it you know if this film's going to commit to having that memory be the most important piece of you know this the most important artifact in the whole film the kind of the thing that they're all on the quest for in the way that, say, the Philosopher's Stone is in the first one, or finding the Chamber of Secrets in the second one, and stuff like that. I feel like if discovering the memory, there's like, when you finally enter the Chamber of Secrets in the second film, it's like, wow, we're finally here. Whereas when they get the memory in this, it feels like it just it doesn't hit in the same way, but they've been searching for it for just as long in terms of film time, because I think this is like the second longest of all the films. It's, 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 it's over two film, and a half it's hours. It's more of a thing in the book, though, with Slughorn. Mm. Like he, Harry pressures him for the memory like a couple of times before. I mean, he does, he does in this and, too, and but it just on, becomes really yeah. quite indignant with him mm. on on a few occasions. Whereas in this, it's it's not Jim Broadbent's fault. It's not the way that he played the character. It's just the way that the script was written, where um, Slughorn's kind of a bit of a, a wet flannel, and he's like, well, yeah, there's a bit. There and is he a just bit kind of laughs it off and goes away, rather than it being like a. Like yeah, stop they pop, it! They, they do put the fallout in the book. It, 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 it's a yeah, very, it's a very quick turnaround. Yeah, it is a really quick turnaround because they fall out. Harry goes back to his dorm. Ron's got the love potion, and they go yeah. back to Slughorn. And, and it's the same day. That's yeah, a big and it change. just it just doesn't. Change. Change. Yeah, it's the same day. So there's yeah. that, and there's no real sense of the fall before the rise with regards to getting that memory. It just that's it. It's just very quick. And then when they get the memory, it's like okay, this is a very important piece of information, but we have already seen sixty percent of this scene. So we're already there. We just need the last bit of, bit of information to kind of slide the jigsaw puzzle into place. And that's, that's not like a bad thing. It just means that if the film's going to commit to that, I want more Harry and Slughorn stuff because the stuff that's there, like the last scene that Harry and Slughorn share together before the memory's handed over, actually it's as the memory's handed over, is really beautiful. I love that story about Lily giving him the fish yeah, and the, the nice petal and everything. That. That's really gorgeous. Like the, the, It's not like... It's not just exposition, it's like it's him actually like telling a story and he's really working hard and yeah, okay, you've got the liquid look on your side and you kinda know where it's heading, but 
it's after watching Harry act so strangely and then kind of having the Aragog scene get played for comedy in a weird way because like Jim Broadbent's kind of bumbling his way around he accidentally breaks off a fang and like it goes oh god I don't know what I've done with this and like he doesn't even know who Aragog is it's because it's when a very say- like level of solemn filmness so I think they just try and like perk yeah, it up so slightly after all that it does arrive at this point where after Hagrid's passed out it's kind of like when it feels like Harry's been itching to speak to somebody and he's kind of waiting for somebody to leave the room and then Harry Hagrid kind of leaves the room in one way or another and they finally get down to like the proper nitty gritty and there's that moment where Harry kind of uses um, Jim Broadbent's own kind of collection and memory against him where it's like where he says you know if you don't give me this memory we can't beat him and if we can't beat him then that'll be down to you as well like you caused this mess so at least fix it and it's I think it's a really great scene between the two of them I think there's there are there is a nice stand I mean we were talking about we were criticising Daniel Radcliffe and Bonnie Wright's chemistry but I feel like um, Daniel Radcliffe's chemistry with Jim Broadbent is pretty solid because Jim um, Broadbent's just a fucking titan though he's brilliant like, yeah no he absolutely is I think it does have oh it clearly has more to do with Jim Broadbent than Daniel Radcliffe but you know it takes two to tango so you know I'm willing to give Daniel Radcliffe a lot of credit for that um, I feel like, although it is probably my least, one of my least favourite little Christmas segments of the films, I love, I've never met a Harry Potter Christmas segment I didn't like, I do like this one, it's particularly long, from when snow first appears to when the snow finally leaves the environment and the landscape and stuff, it's a quite extended piece of the film, um, I quite like the bit of the burrows, high Lupin. Hey there, you know, good to see you. Good to see Mr. Weasley as well. Valuable bit of exposition about um, the vanishing cabinets <laughs> and explaining what they do and what they are. And I know that the scene with the Burrows is pretty controversial in the book fandom because... I don't have any problem with that scene, but it is... No, but it is a controversial scene, but I, I quite like it. I think at that point in the film, it is turning from a slow burner into just a slow film. And just at that point where you need it, and clearly they know that, because just at that point where you need a bit of injection of something, you need a bit of a punch, even if it's only a temporary sense of loss and it's like an illusion because the Burroughs comes back in the next film. You need something, and I think David Yates is very, very good at doing wand-based stuff, where I know we were kind of laughing during the film saying that sometimes people say spells without waving wands and sometimes people wave wands without saying the spells, but I like the fact that he never uses any music and it means that we were saying, like, in Order of the Phoenix, you get quite a lot of the onomatopoeic stuff of the spells kind of, like, breaking stuff and, like, wisping from one side of the room to the other, and it's quite a lot of impact. and It's very intense. Yeah, very, very intense, and I think a lot think of that... it takes away from the magic of it, though. I think going for realism is something you shouldn't do in Harry Potter. Oh, no, I think it brings it down to base, and you've got that, like, the tension yeah. there, because you can hear everything that's going on. It's like... I, I don't know, it's... You you can hear everything that's happening and you just can't do anything about it. Whereas when there's and and the complete silence adds to that. It's like it's a really popular thing in horror films nowadays that well like a quiet place and bird box and stuff yeah. like that. The whole film is played on complete silence. Um and I think that's done really well with the, the fight scenes in Harry Potter where you've got all this magic and all this kind of I say pomp, but I don't mean like um excessive but it's it's very uh magical and whimsical and it kind of swishes you into this magical world where you just feel like you belong and then it just punches you back down to the ground just like this is a fight 
I do get that, I do, yeah. And, and uh, I've always really liked the Harry Potter fight scenes that David Yates does, and the way that he does one battles and all of the visuals and the cool lights and whatnot, because it makes it feel like, um, almost like a gunfight, like yeah. you can see what's happening and there's cool lights going on, it's like, wow, this is awesome. Whereas if it was like it, what it's supposed to be in the books, you know, where someone says stupefy and that person just gets stunned, you know. Yeah, there's no, like... Thing for you to follow. Yeah, like, like it would just be kind of boring to watch. Whereas all of the lights and all of the sounds and like the whooshes and the phews and all the cool, almost sort of like the to me it's sort of akin to a Star Wars fight scene with the blaster noises and seeing the lasers go across that sort of thing. That's what I like about the Harry Potter one battles because I just think they're so visually they're really cool and they make it feel like like some sort of magic sci-fi battle and I just yeah. find it really awesome. To and watch. speaking of like physicality and stuff. Considering that I'm not a huge Quidditch guy, I thought the actual Quidditch game, I think it did a good job of making it seem kind of dangerous. Like, especially when those Slytherin guys kind of crash into the pole and, like, you know... Way more dynamically done than the previous Quidditch Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're how many years on from Chamber of Secrets now? Seven years? Yeah, there was... I mean, the one in Prisoner of Azkaban is a pretty... Pretty gnarly Quidditch match. Yeah, thundering it down. And that, that's like, my favourite Quidditch sequence. Yeah, yeah. But no, they, they do a pretty good job. Um, you never really find out who wins that game. It doesn't matter. Um, it's well, well, presumably it's Gryffindor because yeah, they're all celebrating Ron. Oh, of course, yeah, they're all winning the game. Yes, yes, of course. Um, I don't know, it matters because we never see who wins the Quidditch World Cup. Apparently, in every Harry Potter film, there's only ever one Quidditch match in the whole year. <laughs> yeah. We never find out who won who the match in Prisoner of Azkaban, where you're saying as long as Harry gets no, to the um, Harry even says, I went the match, who won? And then they talk about his broom. Yeah. Um, but to start by talking about something I liked, and then transition what, all into All of that some... stuff wasn't stuff that you no, liked? No, 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 no. I'm going to try and segue back in to kind of like, so that we can kind of round off, I think. But um, So, yeah, I think it teeters on the edge of being um, slow and a slow burner. I think it's mostly a slow burner than it is slow, but, you know, whatever. But the stuff I was going to say is that I can appreciate what people say about the score and I agree with some people that this is probably the weakest Harry Potter score. I think that says more about all of the other scores than it does this one. But there are moments in this where I really get it. Like like I really like what they do with it. I think that there are little motifs and little themes, especially around Draco, all of his stuff in the room of requirement. I love the yeah, but it's too, this is the thing. This is the problem I have with it. That's that, that's two notes, and this yeah. is the problem I have with well, both three. of Nicholas Hooper's scores. Is that this one in particular? It's so minimal. It's like there is just nothing going on. This it's just the themes are so kind of. It's just a couple of notes and their motifs rather than the themes. It's just mm-hmm. like the the instrumentation is really thin. I just think there's no substance to this score. There's what else is Nick Hooper known for? He, David Yates. He works with David Yates. Oh. Not, not like in Fantastic Beats. Beasts, he generally has done all of David Yates' other films. So. I kind of like how it works in tandem with the way that the characters are being uh, done in this film, though. Because, like, obviously with the the previous films, you've got the support networks and you've got Harry finding his new family and all that kind of stuff. And in that comes this rich, like, orchestral, like fullness this full world that goes with this full full orchestra whereas in this one because it's very insular 
for the two main characters that parallel each other, it, it kind of makes sense that their, sound, their scores are really minimal and insular to go with that as well. Which, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I don't disagree with you that it's a, not the best score. No, no, I am. For my tastes, I don't get much out of it. I, I, I'm going to come on to the bits I don't like. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, and another bit, my favourite bit, and it's a bit that, because of the music, always gives me goosebumps, and it, I mean, it doesn't make me cry anymore because I've seen it like 15 times, but... I think the one scene, oh, yeah, the rising the ones, mm. getting rid of the dark mark, I, would, the string, the because Alexander Desplat even reuses that mm. in the last film. It's I think it's the one bit of the other than like I quite like the pretty stuff um, in Order of the Phoenix, like the theme that gets used at the end of this film for some reason, even though it's never in this one. The like I, I quite like that, but Nicholas. Lovely rendition. Yeah, he's he, he's my least favorite composer out of the 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 scores that have been done for these films. But the 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 bit where I forget what it's called is it Dumbledore's like Farewell. Dumbledore's farewell. That's it. I, I think that's great. Yeah, that's a good and, piece of music because they use yeah. it at the beginning of this, and I'd forgotten about that, and I think it it really nicely kind of accents the the scene at the beginning where Dumbledore's taking Harry away from the paparazzi, and I feel like it really strongly supports. Um, the scene where they like you know they use their wands as candles to get rid of the dark mark and everything like that because at that moment there is a bit of like a it feels like everybody's been thrown out over the edge of a cliff a little bit because Dumbledore's like a big like I say he's a big trump card he's the big safety net he's the when all else fails we turn to X and he's gone and I think the score does really but I think that most of the time though I think it's good moments are really good but most of the time it might as well not be there which is you, my point you've said what most people would say about the score which is the opening and the end and then everything else in between an hour later you won't remember any of it at all mm-hmm. there's 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 the opening scene where they use Dumbledore's farewell there's the last scene where Dumbledore dies where they use Dumbledore's farewell what's in the other two hours yeah I think really and and you know for a Harry Potter film that's a big serviceable but not yeah. memorable yeah. yeah right shall we um Yes. Give our evaluations. Yeah. Who wants to start? Yeah. Andy, you start, because you asked. Uh, I didn't, Jake asked, but okay. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, man, who wants to oh, start? Right, um, You're one being now. Like. I, you know, I, I used to count Chamber of Secrets as my least favourite one, but actually, on balance, this is my least favourite. Um, it's just not to my taste. The the bleakness, the, it's very dull to look at. It's It's... It's pretty boring, I think, a lot of the time. Which none of the other you Harry Potter films really are. You think it's as boring as Chamber of Secrets? It's not. It's not. It's, it's not as draggy as Chamber of Secrets is. But I, I just feel like. Sorry, Vicky. For my own, not a huge fan of Chamber of is Secrets. Is that your favourite one? It's not my favourite, really? but I, I do like it. I like them all. I like them all for different reasons. Oh yeah, I don't think I dislike any of them in particular. But you know, for, for my own taste, this just doesn't appeal to me. I don't like what they do with a lot of the themes and the characters and stuff. Um, and I just, it, I just don't find it very satisfying to watch. It's, it's. I found it a bit of a chore, to be honest. But it's not a bad film, so I'll, I'll air it very so slightly on the positive side. So I'll give it a five point five. Okay, uh, Vicky, our uh, guest. Thank you very much for being on. Ooh. Thanks for having me. Um, score out of ten. Yeah. Well, whatever you want to score it out. You could use score out of fifty-two then. 
As long as we can transpose out, then I'll work out. Transpose that to an out of ten score. If I if I if I score it out of gold lumps, so if I give it. No, it needs to. Have, it needs to have Jeff Goldblum in it to give it a, a it, Goldblum score. It just needs to be divisible by ten, and you can use whatever unit you want. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. On on rewatch, because I've not watched this for a few years actually. Um, I think there's some really, really important and really well done bits in this film um, that really stand out to me as some of the highlights of the kind of latter half of this series um the bit that well the whole scene with Dumbledore and Harry in the caves for example is is whenever I think about the kind of latter half of Harry Potter that is the first scene that pops into my head mm-hmm. um and then oh there's 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 bits and bobs but overall it's it's kind of a it's a it's a, a lackluster film that is Com- it's almost completely filler with a good last act um, and I still enjoyed it as a slower film but not as much as the others I should probably just need to watch them all again and <laughs> I can rank them properly then but uh, it's hard when you're only watching one of these to find a level isn't it, it yeah is totally yeah. I reckon I'd probably give it like a I don't think I'd give any of them less than a six so I'd probably give this like a like a six maybe a seven out of ten so it's, it's not six we'll and go a half. for a six and a half then. we'll go for a six and a half like six and a half out of ten okay uh, right um I'll go a whole one point higher. I'm going to go seven and a half. Um, I think that, like I say, it teeters over the edge of being slow, but I think it just about manages to be a slow burner as opposed to being quite, you know, as opposed to being tedious. Um, I think that a lot of it is filler, but the filler is entertaining enough. Um, And I think the last act is maybe one of my... It might be, other than Prisoner of Azkaban, it might be my favourite last half hour of a Harry Potter film. I haven't really thought about it that much, because I don't, I haven't really, usually I think about films in that way, but I've not, I've not applied it to uh, I've not thought about Harry Potter. Potter. But, and yeah, no, I think it's up there with like Dumbledore's death and um, like the, the aftermath of it and um, everything that kind of leads up to it as well. I think once you get Slughorn's memory and like full memory, everything kind of pieces together and no, I think it, no, I'm, I'm going to go 7.5. I feel like it's not, it's not my, it's not my favourite by any stretch. Um, that's, there were a couple of films I like a lot more than this one um, in the franchise. One of them still to come, but, um, which, yay. But, um, yeah, seven and a half, it's, it's all right. No. I've said literally nothing this whole podcast. <laughs> it was a very nothing film for me. <laughs> Are you going to give it a nothing at a <laughs> No, I have to give it something. It wasn't like unbearable or anything. It's not like Attack of the Clones. I told you not. Or the holiday special. Um, oh, gosh. It's nothing like that. The holiday just... special gets minus points. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. We struggled with that. Yeah. yeah. But you're just... just not a Harry Potter person. Well, I'm not a Harry Potter person. And I feel like I can normally get through a Harry Potter film quite easily because they're all kind of just like fun to watch and... You don't really have to think about them too much, whereas this one's just a bit like meh. You know, that's what it is. There's it's just not nothing fun. to that's it. That's what it is. It's not fun. This the, one. The only fun bit was the little thing with lavender. Just all of the stuff that involved Ron, to be honest, like the Quidditch <laughs> stuff one. and him, yeah, and um, like him being under the love potion and stuff like that. 
like that was all kind of fun but then like the rest of it was just a bit nothingy so I'd probably give it like a, a five yeah okay a bit heavy oh I thought I was gonna give it the lowest score but no, no well, we're all like Harry Potter not, fans it's not unbearable it's not like it's, it's, not, it's not a bad film it's just not a good it's just one mad. it's just completely have you, have you yeah. ever given the lowest score before is this becoming so. a harsh <laughs> note I like it. Normally I'm like, oh god, this is, this is shit timing for Lord of the Rings. Bloody hell. No. Uh, unless Jake's going to go lower than five. Um, my assessment six out of ten Ooh. needs more Colin Creevy. Colin Creevy? <laughs> oh, I forgot about him. So did the makers of these films. Yeah. That kid Nigel is supposed to replace Colin Creevy. He wasn't in this one, though. It's in the last two. Later. Yeah. Later. <laughs> any any further? You've yes. all you've all basically said little bits of you have all said part of how I feel about this film. Yeah. Okay, um, we'll we'll be back uh, as soon as we can with um, Deathly Hallows Part One of Two, mm-hmm. where Harry, Ron, and Hermione aren't in Hogwarts and they go off on the road. Is this where they get the dragon, or is that Part Two? That's oh, Part Two. two. Oh. And they're in a, they're in a Yeah. Well, Dumbledore did die, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? We'll see, we'll see you next week for Harry Potter Infinity no. War and then finish with Harry Potter Endgame. Harry Potter Endgame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Harry Potter then. The Rise of Skywalker. That's the, is that the first child? Silencio!